Welcome, change agents. I'm so glad you're here. This is Cheryl Klein, and you're listening to the Limitless Leader Podcast. Hey there, Cheryl here. Today is an extremely special day. I am super excited to be here with Kimberly Bryant, CEO and founder of Black Girls Code. Kimberly, thank you so much for taking the time to be here. This is like on the heels of a very important conversation that you had with Dan Roth on LinkedIn. And I really, really appreciate you taking the time to have this real, real impactful and important conversation today. Thank you so much for having me, Cheryl. I am you know, really happy to be in conversation with you after working with you and Black Girls Code as an organization for several years. It's great for us to finally have a chance to have this conversation leader to leader. So I'm glad to be here. Thanks so much. Yes, a lot sure has transpired since we met in 2016. And just rolling back a little bit, when you started Black Girls Code in 2011 from nothing, I mean, I think from my understanding, your own funds, it was really bootstrapped and have grown it into a you know 40 plus million dollar nonprofit with backing from Google and Mackenzie Scott, the Gates Foundation, and also from Nike. Um, and also, besides that, really influencing the lives of almost 20,000 girls in technology, and not just girls in technology, but girls who are probably further marginalized within our gender. I think it's really safe to say you're shifting the future of technology with the work that you've done. So can you share a little bit about not just what was your why, but also who is your who? Like, you know, you have a rich history even before Black Girls Code. So what inspired you early in your career to be a woman in technology and then really to take the reins into your own hands and really make the path ahead of you better for those girls coming behind? Well, I, I told the story quite a quite a bit, I think, around, you know, part of my why in, in terms of starting Black Girls Co. really, you know, was my daughter and her interest as a middle school student in computer science and technology and, and gaming and game design, game development, and not finding here in the Bay Area that there were many opportunities for her to um, be involved and be in community with other girls like her that were interested, that had same demographics and background in it. But I think, you know, if we look a little bit deeper, my interest in and my path in terms of doing this work started well before that. It really started, you know, perhaps when I was a 10-year-old or 8-year-old, 7-year-old um, girl growing up in Memphis, Tennessee, and, and in an inner city environment with much less opportunities and, and much less privilege, if you will, than what my daughter was raised in, you know, having a mom that was an engineer in the biotech or in a biotech organization. Like I did not have any of those opportunities and access more so than my daughter had. My access to opportunities was the fact that I was a good student and being a good student and being in an advanced pathway as a student allowed me to be exposed to opportunities to go into the STEM career that I eventually had as an adult. Um, but I often found that in those advanced classrooms and 
um, my advanced curricula as a young person, I did not see many other girls that looked like me. And I, I certainly didn't see or have experience with engineers in my community. I didn't even know what that was. I didn't know what an engineer did. You know, my mother was a blue collar worker, you know, growing up in, in a single parent for most of the time. So I did not have exposure to black professionals and certainly no, no black professionals that were engineers. And so my pathway to, you know, becoming a woman in this male dominated field, it was a difficult one. It was one where I did not know really what I was getting into when I went to school and majored in engineering. I had very few role models and mentors throughout my four years of college. And even when I graduated, you know, I was kind of thrust into this managerial role with very little coaching, very little mentoring, very little support. And I sort of had to figure it out along the way. So many times I think back on those experiences and I, I absolutely think it shaped me in terms of um, being fiercely protective of, of women, especially women that are thrust into these leadership roles or and certainly women in male dominated career path, whether that be engineering, computer science or elsewhere, but also really you know, fiercely protective of other black women because you know, I think many times along that path that I had, I could have dropped out of the funnel and not been here sitting in this space because I was often told that I wouldn't be successful or, or that I couldn't be successful or ignored and, and uh, rendered invisible along this journey. And I, I really feel strongly driven to um, be a beacon for other women, especially other Black women, so that they understand that that they are valuable, that they are seen, and, and that they are worthy of exploring their pathways and dreams, even if others have told them no. Yeah, and I think you brought up, bring up such an important point that it starts with feeling worthy. And mm -hmm. talked a little bit offline about the impressionable age, you know, that sometimes we forget about or discount the things that we've heard from people of influential places, whether they're parents or teachers that have told us when we are, what they told us between age, let's say six and 16, and really examining that and and making sure that we have a tight group of people that are reshifting our belief system. And just referring real quick to your interview with Dan Roth that was on LinkedIn pretty recently, some of the things that you mentioned such as, you know, and you were referring a lot of the time specifically to your nonprofit when it comes to having bylaws that are really airtight and, and also having um, members and people in your community that are small and very tight and make sure to vet, vet, vet and revet, you know, as far as the staff, the volunteer, the consultants, the board members. But it seems like that advice that you mentioned when you were speaking specifically of Black Girls Code and what you've learned through the experience over the last gosh, 11 years is that it seems like it's universal. So it seems like, you know, to have a tight group to really vet who you spend your time with. And if you don't have that inner circle, do you think it's important to go out and find the mentors, find the sponsors, choose your friends wisely, 
and and really take some of what you mentioned in that interview when it comes to your experience with a nonprofit and really um, build your own personal board of directors on your journey to shift maybe what you think is possible. So what are your thoughts on that? I I absolutely agree with that. I, I think, you know, that my experience with Black Girls Code and just with life in general is that it's incredibly important not only to understand what your core values are, and I don't mean um, core values that are tied into your work per se, but what are your personal core values? And to align yourself in all facets of life with folks that, um, if not share those values, because you know we all have different personal core values, um, but that they're not in direct opposition to them, right? Because I think that's when the friction that can't be resolved um, tends to occur. So I think like even going back into you know my experience with creating the board of directors at Black Girls Code, I, I talk a bit about in that interview, I, I think it, you know, is still there. Hopefully it made the cut about, you know, initially thinking we had to legitimize the organization and to legitimize this organization that had been doing good work for almost seven to eight years by the time we created this formalized board structure. Um, I thought I needed to go in and seek out folks that had a certain um, a pedigree, if you will, from a professional standpoint. And, and I turned away from some of those folks that were aligned in the trenches as community leaders and builders right alongside me for all of those years and, and decided I needed something else to legitimize you know, the organization's next phase of work. And, in hindsight, I, I don't think that I did need those things. I, I needed some folks that had experienced the same type of struggles that I had as a community-based grassroots leader and had some of those same values aligned with building things for the community and not driven by more capitalistic gains or things that were not aligned with the work that I really wanted to do with the organization. And I think with whatever you are doing in life, you know, be that you know, personal community, um, in neighborhood community, you know, personal relationships or your work, you know, really being sure that folks that you are in community with are aligned and, and have complementary values to yours is important for success and, and for peace of mind and, and being able to be successful in, in whatever your mission and journeys and goals are. Yeah, that's so important. I just want to reiterate what you said about core values. The first step is being aware of what they are, you know, and then, you know, within whichever communities like you were talking about and also thinking through because a lot of times, especially for emerging leaders, sometimes friends, even when you're thinking about social circles, I mean, those can be really important too. And maybe it's time to take inventory of, you know, you know, you've heard of the saying we are a compilation of the five people we spend the most time with. So maybe it's time to start taking inventory and not kicking anyone to the curb, but thinking of, okay, who needs to get pulled in and who maybe needs to get pushed out. And if you don't have that, that, that core group that's aligned with your values, then, um, you know, there's ways to, you know, seek out and be really proactive about finding them. So I think understanding your core values and then and then creating the communities to support them is super important. So I appreciate you sharing your knowledge and also 
um, being being vulnerable um, because I know that this hasn't really been an easy time. And so, um, but learning from you is going to really help a lot of people after you. And I'm really excited also to learn more about what's going to come next and what you're going to um, learn from some of these very important examples. And so getting to the topic of talent building an equitable talent pipeline, a lot of these things are very directly created and really, what is the word I'm trying to say related, because I'm thinking that creating an equitable talent pipeline really has to do with, you know, who are you connected to? Who are you making big asks of? And also not just creating the pipeline, but then supporting them going forward. So based on your experience in Black Girls Code and even before Black Girls Code, can you offer some insight on how to build and sustain an equitable talent pipeline? Well, I, that's a great question. I think when we first started Black Girls Code back in 2011, we thought that the problem we were facing was one of, I wanna say, volume, like getting as, as many girls trained as possible, many girls from marginalized communities trained as possible to really um, front load this talent tech pipeline. Um, so that that kind of goes to this, this, this big hairy vision of training a million girls to code by 2040 that we had, you know, from the very beginning. I think what has been unfortunate to find um, over the last 10 years, the, the number of Black women in the tech industry has actually declined. So when you look at those numbers and those statistics, um, and you look at it from an ecosystem perspective where Black Girls Code is certainly not the only organization doing this work, but even we have reached 20,000 girls. Then you have other organizations, you know, Girls Who Code, um, girls in tech, many different organizations doing this work, you know, so there certainly has been a volume fed into this funnel, but the number of black women in tech industry has declined. So something is not working there. And I think that really um, comes back to this notion of we can train as many students, as many black women as, as we possibly can. And those numbers and the statistics will not change until the organizations in which they are being fed into changes their culture. So they not even not only come into the door, they come into the organization, they stay, they grow within these organizations, um, they level up, they become the leaders, the CEOs of these organizations, so that they are not um, falling out of this leaky pipeline, if you will, is what we have now. So I think part of this issue around sustainability is not just about the K through 12 pipeline or even that next four years of college pathways, two or four years. It's about what needs to change in organizational culture, what type of systemic changes need to come to the forefront of our discussion so that these environments not only nurture people that come from a diverse background and community, they help them grow in those organizations and thrive in those organizations. And that organizations such as ours on the outside can also now kind of shift our focus on not just teaching coding skills, but teaching these holistic skills on how do you survive in this industry until the changes 
are evident so that where you do feel fulfilled. And so I think more work needs to be done internally from a systemic perspective within the organizations in the industry, as opposed to trying to fix the students themselves by you know either giving them more tech skills, et cetera. So I think it's this value-based lens. It's like, it's not the students we're trying to fix. Now we need to actually fix these systems because that's what's broken. Yeah, I agree 100%. And that really resonates a lot because in the last like three months and doing speaking events at Oracle and Insight, Women in Technology Global and what have you, it's just um, what I'm learning is that um, you know, there's DNI experts that are dedicating their entire careers to making this right. Um, but a lot of times it's not happening quick enough of no fault of theirs, but it seems like it's needs to be from the top down and their leadership, even above, you know, the chief DNI expert has to have that leadership buy-in. But um, I'm also seeing that what's helpful is on, and of course I'm partial to coaching because that's what mm -hmm. I got out that I wear, but also providing the shoulder to shoulder help and really going with them and shifting mindsets and having that support system. And like I said, going shoulder to shoulder with them um, and making sure that they are supported. So coming at exactly what you were saying is to really shift cultures and companies, but coming at it from both, both angles to give some of these girls emerging leaders the um the tools and the mindset to you know to keep going to support each other and like we were talking about early how to make big asks you know and how to increase their visibility and impact and how do they feel so they feel worthy in a place where they might be the only or double only or what have you so giving them that holistic support and also while while these shifts and changes are happening in the background. So that really resonates well, um, you know, when you were talking about it's the organizations that need to change and maybe part of that change can come with with ongoing support for the women that they're bringing into their pipeline. Yeah. And I think we're just in this period also of rapid cultural transformational change. And I, I mean that from the standpoint that, you know, I am a, a Gen Xer, I am still in the workforce, very much so in the workforce, but you know, I have this, this, this length of experience of being in my field, which gives me certain perspectives on how I see work life and what, what work life looks like. But we're also in this period where we have, you know, this, this very large millennial cohort, uh, generational um, shift in terms of what they view as, as work life and what, what a successful work life looks for them. But also now, you know, my daughter's a Gen Z. She's about to enter the workforce. She graduates in a couple of weeks. And their perspective is totally different. And, and I, I certainly don't mean to overlook the baby boomers because the baby boomers are still in the workforce too. So I think we're at a very interesting time where there's this interesting mix of generational um, perspectives interwoven into various workplaces. And then you you layer on top of that the, the demographic differences and perspectives and the gender differences and perspectives and 
all these other marginalized identities on top of that. And I think it's a very sometimes challenging time to be a leader. And, and, and I'll speak for myself, it certainly was. <laughs> it was a challenging time to be a leader because you have to not only deal with your own stuff, you have to understand everybody else's stuff and what they bring into uh, the workplace each and every day. And, and, and it's very different in, in many ways in, in terms of how we've been taught. And so I think it will be interesting as we have these future of work conversations to understand like, you know, how do we change not just work hours or work days, this is it a four day work week or five day? Like, I think that's, that's a new point. It's about how do we change culture and how we interact with each other, whether that's a three day or five day week or virtual in person, but how do we change those, those, those ways of communicating with each other, those ways of sharing power in a way that everybody feels heard, everybody feels in, in some ways equity in the workplace, which is something that is very different than, you know, I would say the past decades of, of work. And if we don't get that piece right, I think we'll certainly have many more instances of, you know, this the great resignation. I, I don't that may not be going away until we learn how to change that work culture in a way that that creates equity overall. Yeah, and I just I just have a hunch that you're going to be part of the solution somehow, uh, based on what I know about you. And so, for everybody listening, can you give a call to action? You know, something that either go here, look at this, read that, or always remember this particular thing. What would you like to leave with the listeners? I would absolutely, uh, I would definitely encourage folks to dig a bit deeper into these notions of, of culture and power dynamics in the workplace. There's lots of reading on that. I've spoken about that a lot in my work. And I also want to really encourage folks to, um, as I move forward into what's the next phase for me to continue to follow me and, and the work that I hope to do in this specifically around women and, and women, the impact of leadership with women leaders and especially women from marginalized communities. And I would also say just really continue on this pathway of, of growing internally ourselves with how we show up in the world as leaders and, and understanding that um, the world is changing at a very rapid a very rapid pace. And if we don't evolve as leaders in a way to keep up with that rapid change of growth, um, we won't be very effective. A hundred percent. So if you are not following Kimberly Bryant here on LinkedIn, please do so. And what I know you're pretty active on Twitter. What is your Twitter handle? Uh, my Twitter handle and, and most of my social media handles, with the exception of LinkedIn, whereas Kimberly Bryant is six, the number six, and Jim's, J-E-M-S. And really excited about some of the things I'm cooking up for the future. So follow me in any of those places. All right. Well, if you are not following Kimberly Bryant on all of those platforms, I would recommend <laughs> you do so. Kimberly Bryant, it's been an absolute honor. I can't wait to see what's next for you. I am cheering you on 100%, one of your biggest fans. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me, appreciate it. 
If you've enjoyed this episode, follow or subscribe to the Limitless Leader Podcast with Cheryl Klein on whatever podcast platform you use. We'll let you know every time we release a new episode. And if you really enjoyed what you've heard so far, rate and review us too. That's one of the best ways that you can support us and make sure that this podcast keeps going. And also, I offer a significant library of free mental toughness and high-performance videos, worksheets, tips, and other helpful content on my website at www.cherylkline.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Cheryl Klein, and I look forward to having you back next time. And remember, you're only limited by what you think is possible. Cheering you on always.